0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Physiology Secrets Podcast. Nick here. We've got a fantastic guest on this episode in Hugh Darnell. Now, Hugh is a strength and conditioning coach who specializes in working with endurance athletes uh, based in Brisbane. So we're fortunate enough that when he was in Melbourne recently, we were able to get him out to the lab, uh, to the Mets lab for him to check out what we do, but also be able to sit down and create a fantastic episode for you to listen to. Uh, In this episode, we touch on uh, his specialty in terms of injury rehabilitation and returning athletes from from injury and what he describes a post process of pain to performance. Uh, some really interesting insights there in particular, uh, really keenly listen to the section where we talk about some testing uh, and some benchmarking that he goes through. I think that's a really important one for even the athlete who's not injured, who might've been not really sure where their strength is at and, and why it might benefit them. Go and do some of those practical tests. You can just do them at home. They're really simple. Uh, the, the couple we describe um, really great insight in terms of where you're at and, and, ultimately, those are the minimum standards he's looking for for an athlete to be able to, as he says, do things like earn the right to run again uh, post-injury. But if you're not injured and you're not able to hit those benchmarks, definitely something I would consider in terms of thinking about incorporating some more strength training into your routine uh, and lifting those minimum standards. But Outside of that, we also talk about just implementing general strength conditioning into the busy endurance athlete week. We know it can be hard at times, so some really good practical takeaways there. And then we rounded out our conversation uh, in this one, and we, we could definitely go on forever, so we did have to uh, to wrap it up, but we talked about some of the work he's doing with athletes around manipulation of breathing. Uh, a really interesting uh, component of what Hugh does is is analysis and assessment of athletes' breathing, but also implementing strategies to be able to make it more effective. At, at times, we, we take for granted uh, the process of breathing, but we can actually use it to our advantage in a number of different ways. So some really interesting insights to round it out. So hopefully you enjoyed this episode. And without any further ado, this is my chat and discussion with Hugh Darnell, and conditioning Coach to Endurance Athletes. All right, mate. Welcome to the Physiology Secrets podcast. Thanks for uh, first and foremost coming out to Melbourne. Obviously, you're going to be here anyway. But um, thanks for coming out to the lab to, to join us. Do you want to just give the listeners a bit of a rundown on who you are, what do you do, and then probably more importantly, like how you found yourself in the endurance world, and ultimately to where we are now on the on the podcast. Mate, thanks for having me in the clinic. Uh, yeah,
1: awesome to get down to Melbourne. Going to be visiting the athletes' authority boys. So um, good, yeah, good, 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 Jim. I'm a little bit biased, but good, Jim. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> great blokes. Yeah, mate. Um, kind of, yeah. I guess I'm an exercise physiologist. Hugh Hugh Darnell is the name. Um, Pretty fortunate in my journey in the career. I kind of started off. I think it's always good to hear the origin story. Yep. Like amateur level athlete, obsessed with sport. Probably wasn't quite good enough to hit the elite level. <laughs>
0: what did we? What did we play? What did we? What did we do?
1: Mate, I was water sports mainly. Yep. So swimming, water polo yeah, with cool. the main two. Um, bit of soccer, um, rowing, cricket. Bit of everything. Made surfing. Still get behind all those kind of things yep. now. But I uh, spent a bit of time in physio clinics, I uh, had shoulder reconstruction, um, injured shoulder, and kind of that, saw that side of things and how it was run in terms of like a rehab uh, point of view. Had a bit of heartbreak in those uh, offices, mate, and yep. kind of wanted to shape my passion around sport and then making sure people didn't experience those same kind of heartbreaks I had as a young fella. And yep. um, always give that analogy around, you know, people can be flying with their sport, but as soon as injury creeps in or re-injury, it's like, it's so shattering for the athlete. So my whole passion and purpose is around trying to prevent people from going through those same experiences.
0: Yeah.
1: Or when they get in that situation, just you know, helping them be guided out of there and kind of viewing injury as an opportunity to become a better athlete on the other side of it. Um, that's kind of like the, the origins of it. And then did my exercise physiology uh, studies and, got the opportunity to intern and work in some pretty cool organizations uh, in the AFL and uh, with the Brisbane Lions and then ran some kind of um, entry level QRL programs. And I think if we're gonna compare any contact sport to endurance sport, like, you know, AFL's the the main one where you can make any- It's it's,
0: it's pretty close, isn't it? It's like, yeah, you you sorta, yeah. We're not expecting a triathlete to receive full body contact, but at least the endurance capabilities are somewhat leaning to that side isn't it and it's like you're seeing similar sort of things in some of those aspects aren't you 100 percent
1: yeah some of these guys in footy are doing you know 16ks yeah. of total volume and then 2ks at high speed meters and you know, you're getting obviously 360 degrees of awareness and skill kind of components which potentially um, some of these other endurance sports don't have so there may be a, a little more um, I guess there's less variables to contend with but I think the crossover and correlation of seeing what worked really well in a high performance setting uh, in an endurance style sport and then the where some of your amateur level or maybe not as heavily funded um, endurance sports were kind of missing in terms of like a complete athletic um, performance uh, spectrum. Yep. That was kind of like what I got really excited about and, and thought that, you know, the decade of experience I had leading me to this point was a really good mesh in of working on all these key foundational principles of good athletic uh, performance and, and kind of the health continuum. So propping up um, that kind of stuff. And then uh, one of my childhood mates I uh, used to swim with when I was younger, uh, Claydo, uh, Clayton Patel, he was a quite a high level Ironman athlete himself. And through that, uh, I got to working with a few of his uh, his athletes. I thought I had in my mind, what would work in endurance sport, but it yep. was like, it wasn't a tested, um, hypothesis. I was like, yeah, I think this is what these athletes are missing. Yep. The research was kind of clear around some of the adaptations that would move the needle. Yep. Um, and in my specialty area of kind of injury prevention in a very injurious sport. Yep. Um, I thought I could help these guys get better. And so he he trusted me with, with some of his own training SNC work and a few of his age group athletes. Um, and, and I got to kind of put some of these series to the test. And yeah, a lot of it was right, some was yep. not so right. Yep. Uh, kind of had to adapt the volumes and intensities that I was giving some of these people where you know, some you know, training in excess of 20 hours a week, um, you can't just expect them to shift the same amount of load all the time yep. and, uh, without some auto-regulation being built into training. Uh, but yeah, yep. like I was saying, got, got the opportunity to do some of that stuff. And like one of the guys there, Risi Lawler, just punched out like a, an 824 a busso. <laughs> Um, Last year, so the proof was in the pudding and anecdotally they're like, mate, I I was uh, maybe some of those common like myths or misconceptions around what strength training is. I thought it'd make me slow. I thought I'd get too much muscle. Um, Whereas whereas now I'm sitting at lower heart rate for the same watts on a long ride or or even like higher wattage for uh, the same heart rate, holding form towards the back end of a run. So all these little key economy and efficiency improvements they were getting i was like this stuff actually works yeah. this is cool it's,
0: it's doing what we what we wanted i think that's a really common theme of like and probably and let me know if, it, if it's what you said like do most people come to you because of the injury side of things and then have this realization that there's this performance benefit or is it is it more so um they're, they're sort of seeing you from a general sense and it's almost the, the other way and you just manage the injuries you go along like I, I'd, I'd probably i guess guess that most who probably first get in contact are like I just need to fix this injury so I can go back and swim, bike, and run again. But then it's that realisation, isn't it, like, well, no, this actually has a time and place for the rest of my preparation. Um, you can do all the swimming, running, and cycling you like, but um, the the supplementary stuff out of those sports is like, I think more people are having a bit more of an awareness of how critical it is not only on making sure that they stay fit and healthy so they can go and do the sport that they want, but then also, yeah, like, we're getting these pretty significant performance benefits that we wouldn't have otherwise got if we were just doing the same thing we've always done with swim, bike, run, or if they are a marathon runner, just keep running and running and running. Like, it is that genuine supplement to... It's the it's almost like a fourth little sport. It's like, we're not, we're not having to lift anything on race day, but it's definitely helping us make us much better athletes in the long run. 100%, man.
1: I think it's like, yeah, two points. I think... Uh, A lot of people originally kind of found me because they are injured. And let's be honest, most triathletes or or runners- There's something going on, isn't there? they to be a niggle. If it's not a full blown injury, it's yes, there's something simmering underneath or something recurrent when they hit a certain training volume rears its head again. So a lot of people do find me that way. Um, But like you alluded to, mate, we get on top of that issue. And then the performance benefits they start to experience by being a better mover. Um, being a little bit more resilient, being uh, more efficient and economical. like wow, the, the same continuum of care or, or things we're working on from an injury rehab point of view. Now, progressively we've, yeah. you know, I'm seeing athletes for three, four years and they're still improving in year four yeah. compared to year one. Um, and so then it's yeah, twofold. I get these people and then they start telling the, the people that in their yeah. club or a coach sees an athlete like really excelling or, or getting on top of some stuff that's been there for a while. And then sometimes it's just purely performance-driven as well. Yeah. So it's kind of two ed- edges to that, uh, or two sides to that equation for sure. Uh, and then the, the second part to that was around, you know, is it the fourth dis- discipline of yeah. triathlon? Yeah. And I argue with uh, Taryn Richardson, who's like the, the triathlon uh, nu- nutrition, uh, I consider her to be pretty solid in that space, or yeah. some awesome information. We always argue if SC or nutrition is the fourth <laughs> yeah. discipline. But I was like, I, I gave this analogy last time. I'm like, look, it's neither. When, when not the fourth discipline, we're the pillars that prop up the three disciplines. Yeah. And if you have weak foundations, then you're not going to be good on the other three, yeah. um, or the, the only three that matter, really. But yeah, nutrition, movement, recovery um it's all the stuff that we need to have yeah and i was like we can even make the the diagram tag well we'll have a picture of these pillars yeah. and then the three disciplines yeah. you know being built on top of that um but yeah it, mate i'm preaching to the to the choir oh, here it, it's so 100 yeah. yeah and you, the myth is you just swim bike, run and you'll be sweet that's all you need to do but i think while well, maybe if you're gustav or, or christian who apparently the only two guys in the sport who don't do SNC work yep <laughs> um yeah, let's be. Let's face it. The majority of people need to supplement with some form of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think like your your analogy there of talking about those other components of being like pillars of what we do. Like it, what what you do in a gym is going to feed back into all of those. Like you're your swimming, cycling, and running. Like it's not exclusively like oh, we're going in the gym, so it's only going to help me produce more watts on the bike, and and it's no relevance to running. Well, yeah, it's going to have a great relevance to running in terms of economy. Like how many you just have to google running economy and strength training and you'll find hundreds of studies of the links and the correlation between how it has a positive impact um so i think yeah we're de- you're definitely on the to the majority of people listening to to this podcast are definitely already converted but um it's it's that good reinforcement that it does have this really strong foundational component like it is one of the big pillars or foundations too being able to then excel and perform at your best whatever level that is and as you as you said, for some of it, it's gonna be your elite top end, but then for some, it's like the age group who wants to go out and race a couple of times a year and enjoy the sport, have a longevity in the sport uh, or endurance sport in general. It's like that that's probably arguably the more important part. Um, while I'm on that point, feel free to name drop here who who, do we, who are we working with currently at the moment like what does that spectrum look like for you as a bit of a like as a bit of a split you spend most of your time with like elite top end performers obviously you sort of name drop Clayton there in terms of like some of his guys who are really serious amateurs at the top end of the amateur field is it that sort of exclusive end of the spectrum are we talking about are we talking about right back through to your, your slower age group or again just wants that longevity aspect
1: But yeah it's it's across the spectrum definitely and not even just uh, the older athlete age group I've got some um, younger one, so national champ, state champ, um, Chloe Bond, she's a 14 year old amateur. So obviously young, but yep. very elite for yep. her age group. Um, I've recently started working with uh, Ellie Hoyting, who's a pretty solid ITU distance athlete. Um, kind of identified some key stuff that we could help prep for a good season. And then um, your listeners would probably know Salty, uh, Ellie Salthouse been working here for probably like two and a half years now been meshed into a pretty integral part of her uh, performance in trying to keep her on the straight and narrow and um, in in terms of like building a robust body that can meet demands of all the training Um, and then Caleb Noble like in the in the men's field help him out uh, on occasion there as well so uh, there'll be some of the the names there. Um, that's insurance sport I got some, uh, lucky enough to kind of span into different sports in, in my private practice which is really cool keeps it very interesting and some of the, the learnings I take from working with guys who are like you know playing D1 American football in the US or yeah. Um, yeah kind of a very different sport but again just building that level of interaction with an athlete and figuring out you know these people whether they're a triathlete or a football, they're just humans and at the end of the day, you've got to connect with them on a level to show them the importance of this staff, show them that you care and build a relationship so you can um, get some of the messaging that we believe is so important. If they know that you care about them, then they listen to what you have to say. Yeah. And so whether it is a you know a salty or a, an age grouper who is definitely not gonna be at that level, yeah. um, you still kind of give them the same love and attention. and you know it's what makes it interesting all these different abilities and different training ages and different injury histories
0: Um, yeah it's what kind of makes it all fascinating mate yeah absolutely and I mean like reasonably humble there in terms of uh, not pumping up your tyres too much but yeah someone like Elliot obviously unbelievable results recently sort of taken out Hobart Melbourne end of last year 70.3 um so if anyone had any doubts about uh, you knowing what he was talking about, he definitely does because he gets some pretty unbelievable results with some of those athletes. Uh, Caleb, obviously third at Hobart as well. So um, let's maybe touch on the, the rehab space and looking into that injury side of things because obviously a big thing in endurance, it's like, as we said, people get injured and seem- seemingly triathletes always have something going on um, at whatever level that is. Um, doing a little bit of my own research of your website. So I did do a little bit of a, an internet stalk from pain to performance is a key phrase or key set of terms that comes up quite a bit. Um, what does that What does that mean to you? What does that, I guess, process look like? And and maybe if you want to elaborate on some of the commonalities, maybe an example of what's a common injury you see and and what does that process look like for someone who comes to you and says, "I've I've got it. I've got an injury. I've got an issue. It, it's painful. I can't train. I can't perform at the level I want to. Like, where do we go from here? To I'm I'm back up racing." I'm qualifying for an age group worlds, or I'm able to top ten, or whatever their goal might be. Like, what what is what does that first mean to you as a, as a bit of a phrase and a broader philosophy? But then, what, what does a bit of a process look like for something quite common for what you see injury wise? Uh, I always fall back on a bit
1: of an equation. I call it the injury performance equation, which I think helps athletes and uh, conceptualize what I'm trying to achieve with them. And I, I I spend a lot of time explaining stuff. So uh, the first hour I spend with someone is like a big subjective objective assessment. We're not going to be going uh, deep or anything there, but uh, the equation is injury equals when your load exceeds your capacity. And so if we're thinking about um, what that really means from a, a conceptual lens, obviously you know greater than and equals to all looks good on paper, but if we can smartly and accurately measure or manage loads and progress it in a safe and smart manner, at the same time as increase your capacity to tolerate load, then that's kind of like the fine dance of pushing load above or to a level that you can tolerate and then edging that ceiling uh, higher and higher as we go through a training process. Um, And so when I can get athletes to understand that, if they come in with an injury, I'm like, look, at some point, your load just exceeded your capacity to tolerate it. And I give them the analogy. You can, like, if I go outside and you know, jump off a high ledge. That's just one instance where my load's exceeded the capacity. I might, you know, break something. Yeah. Um, versus cumulatively, if I just, you know, pound the pavement, I get a bone stress injury. I get a tendonopathy. I get something that's more overuse driven. It's still the same equation. How the load got to that tissue in the first place. Yeah. It, you know, it could be a thousand different ways, but in essence, you've just done more than your body can handle. And, and that's too, you got too excited, you rent your training volume really quickly. Yeah. Everyone's seen that, you know, or inconsistency of training load, You two weeks off every Christmas, you come back into perceptually what is a you know, low load, yeah. but because your body's maladapted or, or something's happened there, um, that, that can be another part of that equation, or you get injured. So your ability to tolerate loads gone down, you've had a surgery, all these things play into that equation. And then the space I exist in and what I try and convince people I can help them do is increase their capacity. For me, that's some key kind of things. What's your movement capacity like? Can you hit key positions? Uh, what's your skill like? Skill, stability, mobility. Can you hit the key positions of your sport well, but can you do it in a safe, stable manner? I always like a Charles Poliquin, Poliquinism. Um, for anyone who knows, he was like a French Canadian SNC coach. You can't fire a rocket launcher off a canoe. If you're not stable, you can't produce force. Uh, And you're not gonna be able to reproduce it over over an extended period of time, which is essentially what endurance sport is. Uh, Then you know strength endurance and and maximal strength capacity all kind of play into that uh, capacity side of the equation. Um, But yeah, once I've, I've kind of underlaid that and I've explained that to the athlete, then it's like, all right, you're currently at point A on this map and we discuss where that is, what their thoughts around being there are, what they think is going on. And you want to race, you know, 70.3 in five months time. Yep. First of all, we discuss whether that's a reality or yeah, not. Is that realistic or not? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we kind of think about what the characteristics are of that race. And then I think about what, from an objective assessment point of view, I need to then look at. And let's say I don't know, someone comes in, they've got, um, like a a tendonopathy, We'll go for a a patella tendinopathy, something Yeah. classic like runner's knee type thing. Yeah, 100%. Or even just like anterior knee pain in general, if we didn't even know it was a tendon issue. I go, okay, what is done really well from an injury point of view typically, um, and what's done poorly? And I think in the typical rehab model, people go, okay, I've got a knee issue. And so they just like tunnel vision in, focus on this knee that they've got in front of them. And they forget that the knee is attached to a human. That <laughs> so yep. probably has a job and yeah. you know, big hours and they got certain habitual stuff they're doing throughout the week. Um, but it's also attached to an ankle and a hip and a core and a shoulder and, and all these other bits and pieces that if you think of like a systems uh, interaction approach rather than just like a you know, uni kind of joint approach, um, that can be like a first step to creating a really robust assessment plan. Uh, and then we just go about uh, kind of breaking that down. So for the knee example, I'd go, right, you're getting knee pain with running. What does that actually mean? Is it on a land stride? Is it you know, running up a hill? Is it doing threshold work? Is it a one hour into a two hour run? Like yeah. when does it occur? Then I'll kind of go, okay, maybe it's a endurance thing if it's into a long run, or maybe if as soon as I hit speed, there might be a strength thing. So we're starting to paint this picture of what we want to assess. Then I go okay running single leg stance what's your single leg stability like so we'll do some like single leg just real basic closed chain um tests, eyes open eyes closed challenge their proprioception then we'll make that a little more dynamic look at what their movement control is from like a global standpoint and then we'll see if they've got pain with certain movements and then we'll break it down and we'll go you know what's a single leg calf raise to fail like left first right what's the technique like when they do that what's a um, maximal strength on some hip abduction work look like a manual muscle tester so we can very objectively go okay you're 20 percent stronger on your non-injured yeah. side um, that's an issue
0: yeah <laughs> yeah it's gonna it's gonna cause a bit of havoc in sports where we have to use both of our legs 100%. Um, yeah and yeah.
1: even like down to the level you know hamstrings uh, we know muscles have actions and functions that when it flexes the knee that's it's action it's functions to stop you know, translation of that tibia going forward. So if we can then go, all right, let's test your hamstring strength from two points of view, strength endurance, can you just repeatedly hit a good position with your hammy? Cool, you can tick that one, but oh, okay, you had an ACL Rico when you were sixteen. Look, um, this bad boy stuck around with you, you got a twenty to thirty percent deficit in your hamstring strength. This might be another factor playing into you having knee pain. Yeah. yeah, we can and you know, we can go through a full list of assessments I would do, but I'm just going, this is what you've told me. I've developed a hypothesis of what I think is going on, yep. build an objective assessment, I test you, and then I show you the numbers of what you got. And then I go, okay, literature shows us these things are important, you're testing like this, let's try and move the needle and build a program that yep. just gets you closer towards and able to do all these things really well so you can train.
0: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what, what most of the uh, people listening to this will probably sort of sit there and go like, that sounds like a really comprehensive process. Um, it definitely helps having someone take you through that, so you're not missing anything. I think that's probably an important part in that that rehab space. And is it something that you see from athletes who maybe try and do a bit of a DIY rehab initially? Like, have you had any, any experience with athletes trying to do that, and then they come to you and they're like, "It just like I'm st- I've been injured for a while. I've never been able to get on top of it. Like, are you sort of seeing a bit of that going on where it's like they they, they just need? these like there's certain boxes we got to tick here but most athletes with without that guidance and assistance probably just aren't going to be ticking that box even though they might be working uh in combination with their physio or an osteo like quite well but at what point is it a case of like well the stuff you're doing in the gym and all of these little components to it it's this accumulated effect of getting us back to where we need to like do you see much of that of athletes sort of go i haven't just been injured now like i've been injured for 12 18 two like 18 months two years and it just never gone away but now we're starting to tick the right boxes like you do you get some of that 100 percent, yeah yeah
1: it's a super common story yeah super common story and again it goes back to sometimes it's poorly managed yeah. um, not to bash on anyone in particular but sometimes that's just the reality that they, they, maybe they haven't done good testing uh, maybe it is self-managed yeah we've done a bit of dr google and <laughs> they've got you yeah. uh, Knee bowler or whatever. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they've come up with something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they've uh, tried, you know, a few different uh, treatment strategies themselves, um, and, and that obviously hasn't worked well. If they're now come to me with the same issue, um, and then yeah, the, the third part of that, I guess, would be uh, when they have been assessed, or, or they, you know, they've chopped between a lot of different people because they're not yeah. getting a response straight away. Yeah. They're expecting this thing to be. You know, I've seen this person twice and my knee's not better. Yeah. Um, so maybe it, there's two parts to that as well. It's like you know, poor education, so they're not aware of what you know, from the outset, what what is gonna happen. Um, or two, like they're, they're not just giving it the time that it yeah. needs to take and rehab is a journey and a, a process and tissues take time to adapt. And so again, I, I spend a bit of time just seeing what clients expectations are and educating them on you know, how long it's going to take. So if, if I'm not meeting an expectation upfront, or I'm not even at least laying the belief system there, yeah. that can be a big part of that. Um, and then I, I don't know whether this is just by good luck or, or what it is, but I seem to find people after they haven't had much luck with anything else. Um, not like a last resort, but you know, this has been going on forever, yep. um, please help me. And yep. so I think that rigid kind of assessment structure, I, I talked you through, takes the guesswork out of it, where I just yep. objectively really um, take my emotions out of the equation and just look at what's going on. And then um, if people think they know what's going on, I just show them the numbers yep. and, the, and the numbers don't lie to people.
0: Yeah, 100%. And I think like that it's, this is why, well, part of the reason why we wanted to get you on the podcast, because that, that same mindset you just mentioned there is exactly what we do. It's athletes who aren't really sure where their training's going, Um, We come in, we test, we have this objective set of numbers of like, okay, this is definitely where we need to head. You're in the ballpark or you're not quite in it. It's interesting though, isn't it? It's like when when athletes are up and going and they're going really well, like that seems a really logical process to go through of like, well, how can we keep optimizing and improving? As soon as injury sort of kicks in, it becomes this sort of like, we're willing to be patient when things are going well, but when things aren't going well, it's like, we we want something that's going to work now. Like our physio told me to do this little uh, Theraband type exercise for however long, and I've been doing it for six months, and it's still not having much of an effect. Like that, that's obviously an initial stage, and, and something better than doing nothing with that injury. But what we have to remember is like it's the space where you want like to be able to properly come back from injury, back to where you were. It's like you got to you got to go through this process, you got to do it the right way, and you got to be really specific about it because that's going to lead to the long term better result. than, okay, we can probably do a couple of shortcuts to get you up and racing next week is it going to be that valuable to you longer term probably not um which i think hopefully for anyone to having a listen to this you sort of get that that connection of that that injury rehab process yeah it's no different to what you're already sort of thinking about and working through in all your training it's just we're just applying that to the unfortunate circumstance where you're injured and the reality is like most athletes at some point in time will get injured like you, you can do a lot of things right sometimes and it still can go a bit wrong um and I've had this with a few guys over the last sort of 12 month period is they come in here and even a couple of weeks ago had an athlete come in testing all great we'd set up a time for the following week for them to come back in and do their running test and what happened they came off their bike three days three days after I saw them now their arms in a sling and they've got to go through a rehab process there it's like endurance athletes we probably don't need to think about the injury side on to that extent so you can do everything as best you can but you sometimes can't predict coming off the bike or getting T-boned by a car, like we've seen happen with a couple of cars over the last little while. Um, and so then going and approaching that rehab process to get you back in the same way you would approach your normal training. Um, definitely a really important important thing to think about. What then, I guess, through that process, like you go through, okay, we, we rehab, what are the kind of things then you're looking for to, not tick someone off to say, you're, you're pretty much back to where you were. Like what, what are the benchmarks or what are the considerations you're really looking for to say, hey, we're, we, we can kind of say we're out of this rehab phase now. We, we can really focus on going back and training and performing. Um, is there anything particular like strength-wise, like obviously you talked about imbalance there is obviously a key component. Do you have a bit of a, a system where you're looking all, almost like a bit of a couple of check boxes of, okay, this, this athlete, this client is ready to go again at
1: 100%? Yeah, it's a, like you said, mate. criteria kind of driven, uh, return to sport, skill, whatever we're going to do there. I think running, we just use running as yep. a real base examples. Obviously, everybody understands that. Um, single leg stance, done one after another for five, 10, 20, 40, however long you're running for. And so uh, five kind of key strength endurance tests I like to see for people. If I'm like, you ought to earn the right to run. Like yep. you can't just go out there and pound the pavement if you, yep. you know, you're weak and fierce and you, and you can't even control your body load. So single leg calf raise to fail. Um, We use that on a metronome, one second up, one second down. And the height you can get on two legs, double leg calf raise, is the height you need to hit on single leg. And you need to maintain that height for the full rep count. Um, Benchmark for me is 30 reps. If you can't hit 30 reps, you you don't have the prerequisite (laughs) strength endurance of your calf. Um, And then how they're executing that as well, just making sure they're not rolling out onto their pinky uh, toe, They kind of got good transition through um, first toe, second toe, and can kind of maintain height and, and knee bend. So that'd be number one, really important. If you want to run longer distances, you can make the argument for 50 reps yeah. plus um, going up the chain, like a single leg squat. If they can't do that for whatever reason, like a split squat hold. Um, but that would again be it, down to a chair. If your thighs parallel to the floor, when you're in that bottom position, that's probably a pretty good height to do it to. And then max reps, right versus left. And again, quality of um, movement as well. So we like to film some of these reps, or just if you're in clinic, you can kind of keep eyes on someone. How's the knee tracking? Does it collapse across the midline? Do they maintain good foot position? Um, That would be kind of, yeah, again, max reps, 10% difference side to side but above 10 reps minimum on a single leg squat. And yeah, getting towards like 20 to 30 really, if you wanna have that really good strength endurance. A split squat hold should be able to hold a minute with your back knee about an inch off the floor and your front knee over your midfoot. Um, just so we're looking at good co-contraction of quads and hammies. Um, that would be like the alternative. If you can't do one, try and do the other. Then number three, we wanna look at single leg glute bridge Um, And I like to also do like a hamstring um, style bridge as well. So we can do 60 centimeter box or or bench height, foot up on top, 20 degree knee bend, max reps right versus left, 30 reps on both those tests. Um, I also like to, if people are really solid there, integrate foot control by putting their foot up on a foam roller um, in that same kind of hamstring bridge position and then go for a max timed hold at the top. So hitting a minute, on right, first, left as well. And again, it's always that 10% rule. We want to be within 10% of each other yep. for a sport that's largely bilateral. I yep. um, then go into a side plank hold. So, super simple. Everyone can do that. Uh, again, setup is key, making sure hips and chest are perpendicular to the floor. And then it's 90 seconds. That's kind of like the, the baseline there. But if you go to two and a half minutes on one side and you're at 90 seconds on the other, again, it's that 10% rule. Yep. Um, the important pillar. Why why does a side plank matter for running? If we think about two key things of a run, the the A position, you know, A march, A skip, being able to hit like a good kind of run um, posture, and then being able to keep a locked pelvis is two components to a locked level pelvis, your lateral hip stability group, and then your lateral core above that, they kind of keep everything in check. So lateral core is uh, your obliques, we test that during a side plank. So that'd be like some key strength endurance test, mate. Um, And then we go, my continuum of kind of strength is then into max strength. So being able to control relative body load, so like a bent knee calf raise. Um, So of Peter Marillis' work around some tendon stuff, you know, 1.6 times body weight for a six RM. You can then go to a single leg leg press where you can get objective data. Um, and, that, and that would be, yeah, getting some kind of relative to body weight stuff or in clinic, I've got the dual force plates as well, which is...
0: <laughs> it's always nice to have the extra, the extra little bit of technology above the the normal to uh, to get that further insight. Would you would it be fair to say that with like some of those tests and I guess, again, continuing to move into the space of, well, how can we implement some of the, the strength stuff and, and from your experience, what, what sort of works for the endurance athlete better? Um, w- would it be fair to say some of those tests you've just mentioned, like something as simple as like, the calf raise test like you like said earn the right to run if anyone listening is isn't injured at the moment wanted to have like have a crack at that test like should they be concerned if they can't quite hit those numbers already even though they're not injured like is that something that we need, really need to try and get up and i guess highlights the importance of hey if you're not already or if you're already doing some strength stuff maybe tweak what you're doing or if you're not already doing something um these are the benchmarks for someone coming back from an injury like if you're not currently injured maybe we're in a bit of a period where we're probably just a bit lucky to get away with a few things here like let's smarten up and, and start to implement a bit here
1: 100% mate yep. yeah you hit the nail on the head and then like if someone wanted a free program those five exercises if you yep. can't quite <laughs> do those numbers yet yep. i would chop what you can do by 70% and then yep. do two to three sets of that yep. and just rinse and repeat those five exercises for two to three rounds yep. then you'd have a pretty comprehensive kind of core lower body uh routine that you could play around with there um, but yeah, mate, like if you, if you can't hit those numbers for me, you haven't shown me that you can control your body weight really well yep. for running. And so if you're not currently injured, your likelihood of being injured yep. pretty soon is yeah much higher than if you were smashing all those numbers.
0: Yeah. I don't want to interrupt the podcast for too long. We're just going to take a very, very quick break from my conversation with you. That last point we touched on first and foremost, take a bit of time to process and absorb that. I think for the athlete who isn't injured, really, really important that, if you can go and try some of these tests and you, you pass with flying colors, fantastic. If you're underperforming in some of these and you're not meeting some of those benchmarks Hugh was talking about, definitely, definitely something you need to be thinking about in terms of improving what you're doing from a strength and conditioning perspective or start to implement something in the strength and conditioning space. Um, and we're going to talk about in a moment some practical uh, applied ways that you can implement strength into your training uh, if it is a little bit of a tricky one or managing how busy the week is, etc. But just take a moment to understand what Hugh is saying there. Go back and re-listen to it again. I think it's probably the most important takeaway for me anyway across this entire conversation. What I also want to do is just quickly remind you, get in touch with us. Let us know what you think about these podcast episodes. What are your takeaways? Send me an email, metsperformance.com, or head over to our Instagram page, at Mets Performance. Let us know what you think. What were the key things that you got out of this episode? Have you gone and tried some of these tests that Hugh's talking about? Really want to hear from you. That's a little break there. Let's reset. Jump back into the conversation with Hugh Darnell. Absolutely. Which then I guess sort of leads me into the uh, stru- structuring this in um, probably one of the key concerns that we hear a lot um, when we're chatting to athletes about, all right, hey, you're not already doing any- anything in the gym or strength wise in-, in any capacity, Like, definitely should start thinking about implementing it. The common response we get is, well, like, how do I find the time? I mean, it's great if, if all you're doing is training. And so um, we can maybe-, maybe park the elite end of the spectrum in terms of athlete level because if-, if you're... If you train for a living, it's a bit different to, I've got a nine to five job, might have a couple of kids, I've got some social commitments. Um, I still need to be able to get my swim bike and run in. Uh, I can only swim bike and run on certain days because of all those other commitments. How do you go about trying to implement and fitting this in? Like, is, is it the type of thing that, take the person who goes, I'm gonna go and do the calf raise test. Even just as a start point, they go, gee, I'm nowhere near some of the benchmarks. Like I, I can't get, can't get anywhere close I'll have a crack at doing some of that but i really probably need to get on top of it and start implementing some regular strength into my my weekly routine but, but where does it fit do I, like how do i get it into the training week what are what are your key couple of i guess tips there in terms of fitting in and maybe around how many times a week what kind of like what kind of time do we need to invest within those sessions so if it is a couple of times a week how, how long are those sessions roughly but but then what what do we i guess Where are we structuring them? Like, do 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 we put them on a Tuesday before we go and do our hard stuff, or do we put them on a Wednesday when we're doing some easy stuff? Um, Is is it a good idea to keep it practical? Like, if we're already going to a a pool and doing our swim, and there's a gym there, like, should because that's the most practical? Does that mean it's actually going to give us the best training effect? Like, what are your sort of thoughts in that space of trying to implement it into what can for particularly for a lot of amateurs can actually be quite a what a busy week looks like anyway, adding the extra bit. Like, how how do we find the time? How do we get it done in a way that's going to be sustainable, and then achieve the outcomes we're looking for in terms of getting a bit stronger? Mate,
1: yeah, and this is the conversation I have daily. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny. It's like like you know, pe- most people in this sport, like you alluded to, unless they're a professional training, and that's all they're doing, they're like, mate, I I work forty to sixty to eighty whatever hours yep. a week. I've got kids to worry about. I've got, you know. Got, uh, you know financial stress, yeah. um, relationship, friends, and now you're telling me I've got to do strength as well. It's like, well, I can't do it. Yeah. Um, so I, I just, again, I, I come back to kind of meeting them where they're at and then I give them different layers to it. So I'm like, number one, just get it done. Yeah. Any way you can. So like you were saying, the most practical way for you to get this program done, that's like level one. Yeah, cool. If we can get that uh, over that line, I, yeah, I don't care where you put it across the week, yeah. if that's where we're at currently. Um, because, I, and I, I often have this conversation as well. I'm like, I can write the best program in the world, yeah. but if it's just the piece of paper that sits there, yeah. or the the train heroic uh, <laughs> program that comes yeah. through, uh, don't get me started on stick figures put on piece of <laughs> uh, notepads, mate. But yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. if it just sits on the the table and never gets done, like it doesn't, it's not worth the the, the cost of the pad that it's yeah. written on. Um, yeah. Versus if you know, I've got a subpar program that you do consistently, it's gonna deliver much better results. Yep. So number one, get it done. Number two, if we're already doing that, we're like, all right, what's the research kind of suggest? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of go back to maybe some myths people hold on what strength training is. They've had the experience where a trainer's beaten them to death and the DOMS they've got is yep. so debilitating, they can't even get off the toilet the next day. Yep. And so they're fearful around implementing something that's probably gonna impact the, you know, the swim, bike, run because um, nobody likes trying to push into a headwind with legs that are screaming at you yep. even more they're, than normal. I was going to say,
0: they're probably already screaming at you <laughs> if you punch into a headwind. But yeah, not, like you don't, you don't want any other further disadvantage to that that already. Yeah. Uh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, or then kind of, yeah, scarred by
1: previous experiences or just thinking that it's going to slow them down. Yep. Um, so if we got over those hurdles, then we're like, all right, the research is pretty clear. For endurance sport, you need at least two times a week. And the adaptations were after kind of like those neuromuscular Um, So we're going to have to have at some point, some external load added to the equation to challenge you for lower rep ranges. And so having access to the gym or a home gym with some uh, load you can add is, is going to be part of that discussion. And so again, if we can just kind of fit those two days in happy days, if we're then getting specific or in the week, which is kind of like the third level, it's all right. What are your key run sessions? Let's not do it before that, or like the, the afternoon before a key run, um, because we don't wanna be taking fatigue into a session where you're trying to hit certain run speeds. Whereas if you've got a big zone two session where you're not as concerned about the, the speed you're running at perhaps, but more maybe just the heart rate adaptation you're looking for, you could do it before that or the, the day before that. Um, or always keep your rest day. Don't yeah. strength train on your rest day, which a lot of people do. They're like, mate, yeah, I've got a f- Monday, I don't do anything, I'll do my strength work then. Like, please don't. Please just keep your rest day <laughs> as yeah. your rest day. Yeah, use it. Yeah, use it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, two days a week, um, not impacting your key running sessions. That's what I like to do. Um, or if if time um, permits, we kind of add a third session in and it becomes like a core mobility, um, almost like a recovery session. Everyone always feels better after those sessions than when they started, yeah. but it's just another opportunity to stack strength um, and let's just take it to the extreme example where someone's got literally no time to do strength. I then argue for ten to fifteen minutes before every run, bike session, yeah. where they just do you know two to three sets of two or three strength movements, and accumulate it across a week. That total volume that we can get in just like fifteen minute increments can start to play a bit of a factor
0: yeah.
1: um, versus just you know not having time and not doing anything at all.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a really a really good point in terms of that like for, for a, lot of, a lot of those people who are a bit concerned about oh if I diving into two dedicated sessions of, uh, of a decent length each week how how much do I really want to jump into that as you said you've got you've probably got 15 or so minutes before you run in, in most most cases like if that if that's a case if you need to wake up 15 minutes early I mean that's a pretty small small little sacrifice to you to be able to still accumulate a good effect. And if that's a great way to just get the process started, build some good habits, um, I think that's definitely a great tip in terms of thinking about, well, where can I just do, where can I do something? Because as you said, something's probably going to be better than nothing. And even if it's a really simple, like sometimes probably on paper, what looks like a real boring, like basic program. It's like, if you're doing it consistently, you're doing it a couple of times a week, every week, over a three, four, six month period. Like that's where you're going to start to see the results develop rather than I uh, tried a couple of sessions and it was a bit overwhelming for me initially. Well, yeah, for some people jumping right into the, the deep end and going, All right, let's go, let's go to a gym and get those two big sessions done. Um, and when I said big sessions, like, we're not talking, we're not going to be in the gym for hours and hours and hours, but that little stepping stones, not a bad way to approach it. If you're pretty new to the space and not really sure where do we need to head? And it's like, just gradually sort of build it in as you would with, you're running or you're swimming like most triathletes typically don't come from a swimming background you're not going to jump straight into the pool day one of wanting to build for your first triathlon and go i'm going to go swim 5k today you're going to gradually build it in you might swim once a week and twice a week and maybe it starts to progress like it's all the similar principles to what we're following elsewhere it's just we're just adding it into like as we said at the start it's like this is now just one of those pillar components that's going to help each of those other aspects but the strategies in terms of working into the week—it's—it's it's no different to how you would think about adding any of your other work back into the week, or and you take some time off, or how do I build my running again? You know, jump straight into the two-hour run. We start, we start short, we start building on that as we as we get the time available, as we're able to incorporate into the week, as we can, as you said, as the, the load and the, uh, the the load is matching what we can handle in our capacity. Like all, all of these things start to build as a result. So, yeah, I think that's a really practical way to sort of think about it. Um, in terms of just thinking, like, again, something's better than nothing. I think that's probably the key point. It's like, if you're able to get something in, great. Uh, that's a really good start. Definitely. Where uh, we go from there, it's like, yeah, like, it could be better and worse, but like there's, as a fundamental basics, like get something done. 100%. Yeah. I think there's like, and I use the word off-season, not that some
1: people yeah. have, have <laughs> an off-season yeah. ever, but even if you're in like a lower competition phase or training phase, uh, that would be a time to push the strength a bit and what we go through like a build phase. Yeah. Uh, and then when you get to the pointy end and you're like specializing, doing a bit more race specific work or the training volume really comes up, then we can flip into just a maintenance dose yep. of strength. Because what it takes to build something is not the same as what it takes to maintain. Yep. Um, and so we can go from higher volume of strength, higher intensity work, and then we drop the volume, but keep some of that intensity in season or closer yep. to key races. Uh, and then obviously deload uh, in the appropriate time frame to freshen people up can be a really achievable way of then just maintaining what you've built and less kind of daunting tasks than trying to build stuff in season when you're already tired from your other stuff as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and it's the type of thing, I mean, at that point too, psychology, it's like for a lot of athletes, you just want to focus on that key race that is coming up. But if you're in that phase of B race, C race, like, oh, I'm going to go and do it because it's a local event and it just gives me a good idea of where I'm at now. But I don't really care about the result. Like, yeah. We, we don't need to be as, as focused or concerned about maybe backing the strength off and maintaining there. It's like, we I mean, can push pretty aggressively at that point. But later on in the prep, if you're training out for an Ironman, we've got full distance volumes right at the end of the preparation. Like Apart from anything, it just gets harder to fit the hours in the week. But again, it's like, we're just going through these phases of, well, we, we, we need to get done what we need to in that time period. But earlier in prep, it's the same with any of the training that you're doing as well. Like the reason why our length of intervals change over the course of a preparation is because we're getting different stimulus from different types of efforts or different work to rest ratios. Again, it's all the, the similar principles we're all quite familiar with. It's just adding this extra little bonus that is actually going to have a significantly greater impact on us, a really positive impact on us longer term as well. Um, as we said, it, it becomes a, that great foundation for what you can leverage off and going through and doing that big strength block. Like I'm sure you say this a lot. It's like, once that volume in your swim, bike, run starts to really dramatic, dramatically come up, like athletes just handle that better, I'm sure.
1: Definitely. I've yep. had like three times this week, probably more, but like in the last week alone, it's like, all right, I'm fatigued and I'm as tired as I ever am in training yep. blocks, but the difference between a good session and a bad session now is so small. Yep. Whereas before, like I was so inconsistent. Like it, I would get tired and the quality of like a swim would just be, Terrible compared to now, yeah. The bandwidth is so much smaller, yeah. and I think it's the consistency piece for me. It's whether it's consistency of good sessions or inconsistency from being injured, yeah. That's what the kind of it moves the needle on the most. Um, and it's kind of the when the light bulb goes off for people, they're sold, yeah, and you don't need to try and to keep to yeah. convince them. Um, but once they're there, mate, they, yeah, they, they feel the benefits, and it, it's kind of they just make it a priority now because. Yeah they know when they don't do it niggles start to creep back in they don't feel it's powerful um, or or that kind of inconsistency piece starts to creep in
0: yeah yeah absolutely absolutely changing a little bit of pace now and this sort of comes around again a little bit of a look at what was uh, posted on instagram this morning on your your story before uh, recording this podcast but um another little additional component so we talked a lot about uh injury rehab and return we talked about basics of strength training and and the implementation there but something i know you do a fair bit of work with is some breathing work do you want to touch a little bit on i saw a video this morning and for those who are listening what i'll I'll explain what i what i saw Um, and it didn't have i think it's good because it didn't have a lot of content i think actually left a question on like what are you seeing um was all you left on the video which i i I like from a fact of um it sort of sparks a bit of uh thoughts in my mind anyway of where that might have been going but it was a breathing assessment on an athlete or a client and I guess what is the purpose of of doing that and how does how does this all link back into all this other strength and rehabilitation stuff we've talked about like why why have you like why are you doing some work in the the breathing space and almost doing some breathing training by the looks of things you want to just explain a little bit of background on that I know it's quite a broad area but just in like quick summary of like what that was and then why does that have relevance to the rest of the stuff we're doing yeah well, i
1: I like to throw those little, yeah, thought-provoking things up because I want to see what people see compared to, obviously I'm biased with my context because I know I've best spent an hour with that person before I've assessed them. Um, But yeah, so for context for the the listener, it was someone laying on a bed. I kind of was standing above their head looking down at their rib cage and I was just assessing um, how they breathe. I'm not asking them to breathe any particular way. I'm like, mate, can you just take five deep breaths for me? And I, know I, just, I don't even tell them I'm looking at their breath half the time, I just kind of look in. And what I was looking for there was do their ribs move? Um, it might seem like a uh, basic kind of concept to think about, but from my experience, not many people look at this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, if I give a bit more context around that athlete, he had some pretty significant crashes in his time, broken ribs, um, he had some like neural style symptoms down his arm. He had some compromised overhead kind of stability. Um, and that was like a key, he brushed over, he was like, "It does. it's not important. But when I looked at his ribs there, they weren't moving. Yeah. And the right side even less than the left side. And so what that tells me is he can't expand that part of his body. And if we think about one of your key joints for your shoulder, it's your relationship between your shoulder blade and your rib cage. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in a Spotlight Triathlon, Breathing super important number one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but, but also having good function of your shoulder to be able to yep. you know, hit a good streamline position, get good catch on the water. Um, so for me, I, I was looking at it from a biomechanical standpoint in that particular instance. But then if we take a step back, um, breathing for me is so awesome because one, it's not like a strap, uh, you know, heart rate monitor that if you don't have on you, you can't use. Yep. You've always got your breath on you. Now I'm talking about your breathing. You're probably thinking about your breathing. Whereas yep. before we we're talking about our breathing, it was just happening, right? Yep. So it's the only system, unless you're like super yogi who can control their heart rate, um, that you have subconscious and conscious control over. So for me, that's a window into your psychology. I was talking about biomechanics, but now we're tapping into uh, you know central nervous system, which for an athlete, being able to modulate your tone of uh, autonomic arousal, so parasympathetic versus sympathetic. And for those who don't know what that is, it's like your fight or flight kind of amped up um, response is your sympathetic and then parasympathetic, they call that rest and digest. So when you're super chilled, um, what your body will kind of go into. And they've shown this through research, we can choose to shift ourselves into one way or another through our breath alone. So everyone, people, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Wim Hof, but uh, his style of breathing is, like over breathing, and that will ramp your body up into a state of over arousal. Your blood pressure will come up, your heart rate will come up, your blood flow will go to your peripheral muscles to try and mobilize you to get away from the saber tooth tiger. That's what that stress response yep. is designed for. But on the flip of that, I can then prolong my exhalation and I can start to bring my heart rate physiology back down. Blood flow will divert from my periphery back to my digestive system. If you want to you know, assimilate the nutrition from your post workout shake or whatever, super important thing. Uh, And a strategy you can do is just do some, you know, four in eight out nasal breathing, slow control for five minutes, I get all my athletes to do this post session. Um, That's like a good way of flipping into that state of uh, recovery. Then we can also uh, think about within interval session, you were talking about intervals before, but and I've done this with a heart rate monitor and looked at an athlete in real time, no focus on breathing or breath control in between efforts, heart rate doesn't really drop where we want it to versus long exhales, controlled nasal breathing as quickly as possible between an interval or what they call the physiological sigh, which is like a double inhale, long exhale. Um, it's like a if you can get to that style of breathing in between an interval, the rate at which your heart rate drops so you're recovered again before your next effort and then the quality of that next effort, it's it's a bit of a game changer. Um, and then, it blows my mind as well. And they've done some met card analysis stuff on this where they'll look at whether you go to like a nasal breathing versus a mouth breathing strategy. And regardless of heart rate, um, you can start to shift to more carbohydrate utilization if you start with a mouth breathing strategy early on in the piece. And so now we're talking about physiology. So we started off looking at the biomechanics yep. piece, yep. but now we've gone to physiology, psychology, and biomechanics. So it's like this interaction of uh, three major system the only three systems in the body really yeah. um from breath alone. so you can kind of scope in or come out to the, the, the thousand foot view and um you can get as esoteric and as um yeah fish pants with a bit of you yeah, know yeah, fisherman pants with some incense on it go yeah. a little bit <laughs> on it if you want but um if i keep it scientific and pretty action based on my athletes they can kind of buy into it and Um, there's even some stuff around your spleen releasing kind of uh, EPO rich blood if you do some like hypo, uh, hypoxic training with some like dry land breath holds and you don't try that stuff underwater but (laughs) um, yeah doing some stuff like that there's some cool evidence around some performance additive stuff
0: you can get off that yeah and I think it's one of those interesting ones because and we were sort of saying before we started recording this in a quick conversation like when do you uh, as you said it's one of those systems that you can control it when you're thinking about it, but then also it will just function without. But and and as we've sort of had on the podcast before, if anyone's listened to the the balance runner episodes with Paul McKinnon, he talks about a similar thing with running technique in terms of like, for most people you ask them a question who who taught them how to run, um, and that they're probably not really sure. Far less people I would suspect would even think about the question of who taught you how to breathe, um, and, and have you considered training it or thinking about it. Uh, some of the benefits we just talked about. I mean. The, inter- the interval side of things is a, is a really interesting one in terms of our practice. I mean, if we any way we can recover better from an interval or quicker, it's gonna mean the quality of the session's gonna go up. Um, post-session in general, like if we can get into that more recovery or rest and digest state, as you said, it's gonna lead into, I'm, I'm sure, things like better sleep and then ultimately recovery flows as effective that, um, uptake and nutrition post. There's all of these great benefits from it when we're doing it really well, but if we're not thinking about these processes and kind of taking our breath for granted a little bit, um, which I'm sure a lot of people do, and we've all probably been guilty of at various times in our own performance. But um, yeah, it can be a it can be one of those extra little bits that like it's this is now something we're not talking about taking up any extra time in your week. Like you're already in there doing the interval session, may as well recover from that as best as we can, so that we can get into session two, session three in the week um, a little bit better. And then probably the other point that that, that sort of sparks for me, that touching on um, that change from nasal nasal only to like in through your nose out through your mouth very anecdotal I don't want to put this out here and say that like we've done a research study on this but like testing it with athletes here in the lab um, we actually notice a bit of that change happening at those key physiological benchmarks or relatively in and around that same areas where like your LT1 is your LT2 is your ventilatory thresholds um, we're, we're having athletes report oh like I've gone from being able to uh, at whatever intensity it was 12 kilometers an hour so five minute k pace for an amateur i went from breathing only in and out through my nose to breathing in through my nose and i felt like yeah i just had to breathe out through my mouth i couldn't do anything else sure enough we look at that data and it's like that's a clear transition point from a training zone's perspective like body's pretty good at working some of this stuff out but if we can get better at the control and regulation of that like is well i look and go is there the potential to be able to improve some of those characteristics um, from a performance sense as well as obviously the recovery aspect and all of that but like is that actually going to give us a bit of an edge if, if we're able to regulate that breath, all right, in through nose, out through nose, a little bit longer to a slightly higher intensity? What does that not only mean in testing here? What does that mean in your training? But then, like on race day, um, I'm sure anyone who's done a bit of in through nose, out through nose, for me personally, you always feel a lot more relaxed and calmer anyway, and it just makes things feel that little bit easier. So if we're able to sustain that at at slightly higher pace than what we normally would and it can have a bit of a positive impact for us on race. Day. Like, 100% we're gonna to start to race better, surely. Like, There's gonna be a pretty positive influence there. So as we said, it's, like, it's one of those things we probably don't think of as much or take for granted, but there's, there's so many applications and there's so, it, it links to everything. The biomechanical side, the psychological side, the physiological side, Like, it's all coming back into, into one, but it's got this central focus on like what, what is our breathing doing. Um, man, it's the remote control for your body. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's, it's not like we're
1: telling people to add stuff in you. I'm general, most people listening to this are probably breathing, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're already you're already doing it. You're, you just
0: might not be doing it in the most effective or efficient way.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And then that, uh, what you were talking about there, there's a cool little, I don't know, a concept. I didn't with but the guys from Shift Adapt, yeah. um, Brian McKenzie is yeah. kind of like originally a CrossFit endurance guy. They have the gears of breathing. Yeah. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but there's like yeah. five gears and I, I argue, hardly uh, sorry i argue with my athletes to try and implement the nasal breathing on zone two stuff for as long as they can and initially it sucks you kind of it's almost like you feel claustrophobic in your own body you're like what's going on right now but at any moment you can breathe through your mouth like it's not like it's taped or you never can breathe there again but over time it gets easier you get more efficient uh, at it so that's kind of like gear one in and out through your nose uh, then gear two would be uh, in through your nose, fast out through your nose. So you've got like a you know you're starting to produce a little bit more of the um, metabolites associated with like energy production. So like in getting blowing off that uh, air a bit quicker. Then in faster through the nose, out faster through the nose, in faster through the nose, out through the mouth. So now obviously we're getting rid of more air. And then gear five is like like in and out through the mouth. But you don't want to jump to a gear five strategy when you should only be in like gear two or three. Yep. And like you say, mate, if you can have a regulator on your um, you know, physiology, you, you said you saw the shifts. I strongly believe that it starts to shift the needle on what's going, it's like the inside out versus the outside in approach. Your breath can control you. Or as a coach I used to work with uh, used to say, he's like, mate, don't let your breath control you, you control your breath. Yep. And then by virtue of doing that, you're now controlling what's going on inside your body. Yeah. But yeah, it's a game changer, man.
0: Oh, absolutely. And and even if it's one of those things like we we sort of most people have all the metrics in the world these days in terms of they're they're all racing and training with heart rate, they're all looking at power and all of these other things. Like fundamentally, like if you're really in tune with what's happening from your breath perspective, you're probably gonna have a much better idea of what some of those numbers should look like anyway. Um, so not to say ditch the devices, so to speak, like we still want to record and look at some of that info, but it can then be a really powerful tool to understand what that actually means for you as well. I mean, in, in on race day, like are we? Uh, if you're starting to notice that change in your breath and you've still got 15K to go in the back end of an Ironman run, um, is that gonna put us in a point that's just not as sustainable? And is, it, is that gonna be maybe a little key marker for you to say, hey, probably should just back it down a little bit, use that as a bit of a regulator. Okay, numbers on my watch seem okay, but I don't feel as good as what I might have here. Um, I mean, potentially, for, for some athletes, that's going to probably be the difference between them absolutely imploding with 10K to go and being able to, all right, might not be our, our optimal race today. Maybe it wasn't a, the perfect combination of factors we needed to go on PB or do our best, but we got to the, we got to the finish, we were able to sustain that level of performance that we had on the day a little bit better. Um, there's so many of these little applications that you go, again, it's it's one of those things that, yeah don't take for granted this this sort of fundamental process of yeah you're going to have to breathe at some point if we can work on it and manipulate it more in our favor um we're going to be breathing anyway so like take the one percent or two percent benefit or if it's more than that as a percentage benefit for for some people i'm sure like absolutely take every little edge you can um and even like to the level i'm sure the balanced runner i've seen his
1: stuff big fan of his work but like you know he's Doing drilling that I'm sure he's not then getting his athlete to focus on for a full run. Yeah. Like it's build the awareness through drill specific stuff in your training. So then you can do your thing on race day. Yeah. Um, and that's what, you know, what gym and strength is it's strength work, but it's really just skill acquisition. You're just getting more efficient at a movement pattern and overloading it over time. Yeah. Um, so you don't have to go out and think about your glute firing on the run because in the gym you can single leg deadlift with, you know, 25 to 30% of your body yeah. weight. Um, so then you're not having to think about your glute firing. Like that's what all these things are. It's to take mental load off you during a race so you can just get out there and work your magic rather than having all this stuff, but then having little extra um, inputs or data points that you're collecting just to kind of, yeah, check in on where you're at.
0: Track and, track and measure where, like where yeah, where is, where is that taking me? Is it moving, th- are we moving in the direction that we thought it would help take us or, or not? Or what do we have to tweak? Just a very quick one to, to sort of round out the, the breath conversation. I mean, what, what a what does that sort of look like in terms of getting some of your athletes to practice some of this? Like what what's a like what would a implementation on a on a typical training day look like? I obviously mentioned before trying to build that into say your zone 2 running is a really great starting point. Um, for someone who might jump into that zone 2 run and go I just I just struck, like 2 minutes in I'm already starting to go, "Gee, this is hard." Like really really like bottom basically, like is there anything we can be doing pre-session or you typically recommend obviously we said recovery before is important so post-session is that you'd more targeted like, what does it what does a breathing session look like so to speak other than obviously doing it within your training like what what, what are you giving or, or suggesting to your athletes in a broad sense again there's going to be the individual cases that sort of manipulate all right some people have to do more or less or different types of breathing exercise i'm sure but what's an example of a session that that someone might do as a starting point to help just build it, even some awareness around what their breath is already doing and, and being able to improve it? Well, I think that it would, yeah, rather than going for like
1: a standalone session, I like to just in, incorporate it into what they're already doing. Yep. So to start with, if uh, if we can, nasal breathe only during a warm-up, whether that be for gym or running. So keep the mouth shut. I've even seen some track coaches in the US, they get their athletes to drink a cup of water and they put a line on the cup where the water is, and then they've got to run a warm-up lap and come back, put the water back in the That's cup and fill yeah. it to the level. Because <laughs> you can't breathe through your mouth if it's full of yep. water, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, nasal breathe only in a warm-up. And then on your zone two or your lower kind of uh, threshold stuff, more zone two, just go for as long as you can, get to that point where it's uncomfortable and make yourself go a little bit longer nasal breathing only. And then once you're at that point, Enough and make yourself go a little bit longer yeah, little bit, yeah. <laughs> just keep pushing it and, and if your speed drops a little bit to start with i think that's a okay compromise um because it's not like a long-term thing you will adapt yeah. so that'd be like the first one warm-ups zone two then in in your interval work like we're talking about i think getting that uh, breath under control in between with the the physiological side that double inhale long exhale could be a really cool thing for people to implement uh, and then the down-regulating breath. So uh, I go double exhale to inhale ratio. Um, There's a study, it was like blood pressure, it was over seven second exhale drop people's uh, megs of mercury by 30 yep. on, on a blood pressure test. So anyone in who's going for a, uh, a medical, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> a few long exhales can drop can the blood help. pressure. Yep. Um, but that's five minutes post any session, but at least when I've got him in the gym, uh, we kind of do that stuff. So that's a, a five minute block, four seconds in, eight seconds out, and then you can start to ramp, so five, 10, six, 12, and just get to a point that you can um, yeah, comfortably maintain. You don't want to be one-RMing your breath. Yep. Um, it's just more around, yeah, kind of relaxing the body. And that same thing, if anyone has trouble going to sleep, like pre-bed it's a really good way of down-regulating the system. Yep. So that'd be like some just real kind of basic stuff you could take and implement into your training yep. immediately and, and uh, not have a big time cost associated to it and probably get some or definitely get some immediate benefits from
0: yeah absolutely and I think like even on the zone 2 side of things as you said I don't think anyone should really be concerned about oh, if we have to drop the pace a little bit to be able to sustain that in through your nose out through your nose I mean, zone 2 is meant to be slow anyway so like, if, it, if in the short term it is a little bit frustratingly slow because you're working on this well it's just it's just, another, uh, it's just another way of getting that stimulus. But over time, it's actually going to benefit us significantly greater than, than just continuing to just punch out zone two. It still might be a comfortable run, but again, how can we optimise that so it's probably even e- an even more comfortable run? But then from a training stimulus perspective, we're, once that speed does start to come back, like that's where we're really going to start to see that really great effect because you, you'd be jumping in that run going, gee, working through this really comfortably um i'm not relaxed like i don't feel like i'm under too much stress breathing in and out through my nose like this is all pretty comfortable then we're starting to see big performance translation in in that that aspect so yeah don't don't feel like when you jump in if you can only get through five the first five minutes of your zone two run you have to really start to drop the pace um keep in mind those runs should be slow anyway we're not trying to get you to go out and do this in uh we're not during your efforts in your intervals as we said it's it's in the recovery period where, where where you sort of want to implement it there if you're going out and doing like a three minute or an 800 meter flat out like just breathe how you need to breathe to get through that effort and then we'll worry about the recovery but um yeah I think some really good practical sort of implementation and as we said it's a, a lot of what we talked about here isn't actually adding too much more I think that's a really good message to sort of take away is we're not trying to just add and add and add and then you have to be doing more in the week more in the week always doing extra bits here and there it's like we're just making some small adjustments to the stuff we're already doing fundamentally um yes there's always going to be some areas that we might be able to get a little bit more if we added a little bit more but um especially something like a breath it's like yeah, you're going to be breathing anyway so why not why not make the most of it uh, in the most effective way uh, the most effective way you can um anything else you want to cover or touch on we've covered a lot of ground uh in uh, in this episode already is there anything that comes to mind that you really like physiology Secrets podcast needs to know uh anything quickly
1: Man, I think yeah, we went pretty broad strokes there. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think it all just comes down to foundational prim- principles for me. Yeah, uh, can people breathe well? Can yep. they control their own body? And then are they up for the? Can they meet the demands of the the task they've set out to try and achieve? Um, and if you if you unsure about that, get someone to help you. Like I have yep. a coach because I can't be biased on my own yep. movement. Um, and and I like you know external eyes on stuff like that. So if anyone you know is wanting that kind of external person um i would be more than happy to kind of offer out to your crew like a bit of an offer for the men's performance listeners that if they wanted to get in contact or if they needed help with their their kind of performance journey that i'd um yeah give them a bit of a an introduction uh, kind of offer a bit of a percentage off deal so um if they were interested be more than happy to kind of have a chat like i've got i'm pretty busy these days, but (laughs) so I I can't promise I would make, uh, I can work with everyone, Um, but if we're a good fit, then I could definitely kind of, uh, I get excited about obviously people in this space. So uh, if anyone was keen, then I'd be, uh, if they say they came from the Mets performance, we'd help them out, mate.
0: Absolutely, we always love to hear that. So like for those who are keen, like where where can they find you? How do they get in contact? free little shout out to the social media pages as well. Like where, where, where are we looking if, if, I'm, if I'm an athlete or someone listening to this and I want to get in touch, how do I do it? My uh, socials, nice and easy, Hugh Darnell. Uh, and then
1: my website's the same. Uh, and then on there, there's like a, I've got a Try Strong program, which is kind of very dedicated around triathlon, uh, strength and conditioning. And then that kind of has some of the breath work, some like barefoot, foot training, resilient stuff, uh, good recovery strategy. Uh, work in there, and then obviously the, the the strength programming stuff associated with it. So yeah, Hugh Daniel, nice and easy to find.
0: Nice, nice, always always makes it easy. It's a lot of, a lot easier to uh, type into Google and find than Jane So I can tell you right now, that's a hell of a hell of one to get out there. But we'll leave all the uh, the details of that down below uh, the episode in the description. But mate, appreciate you uh, first and foremost making the trek out to to Mulgrave in the lab here. Uh, but then thanks for joining us on the uh, on the podcast. Mate, no, the pleasure was all mine, mate. I really appreciate
1: you giving me the time and love what you guys are doing. So it's always good seeing people, um, you know, let science and actual, you know, reality dictate their practice. Yeah, yeah, so keep up the awesome work, mate. Appreciate it.
0: So that wraps up another great episode of the Physiology Secrets Podcast. Hopefully, you got plenty of practical takeaways, and I, I guess that's a really key theme of what we want to do and continue to do with this podcast—to make us as practical and as applied as possible uh, for you, able to take some of these concepts and take these ideas, be able to implement them yourselves. And that's a really key reason why we wanted someone like you to come on to talk about his experiences and his wealth of knowledge but in a, in a way that, that you can understand and apply. And I, I think he does that really well, which is why no wonder he's had some fantastic success working with endurance athletes uh, in the space over the last little while. So do really appreciate, again, him bringing uh, his knowledge and experience to the podcast and giving up his time to do so. If you've got any follow-up questions that you'd like us to pass on to Hugh, um, as we said, um, his details will be in the description so you can reach out directly. Or feel free to get in touch with us, nick at metzperformance.com via email. Or at Metz Performance on Instagram. Uh, send us your questions that we can follow up for you uh, and get in touch with you directly. Or alternatively, send us your feedback on the podcast in general. Who else do you want to hear from uh, on the Physiology Secrets podcast over the next little while? Or what kinds of discussions do you want us to have? What topics would you like us to sit down and cover ourselves? Really happy to always hear your feedback and, and generate and create episodes that are going to be most useful to those who are listening to the, the podcast as well. So thanks again for listening to this one and we'll catch you in the next one.